Humility and grace. One of the amazing things we find as we study the account of the birth of Messiah is that everything surrounding the birth of Jesus falls in line in perfect consistency with who Jesus would be and with what he would accomplish while he was on this earth. He would come born of a woman. He would come born under the law. The scriptures say to redeem them that were under the law. He would be born in humility. He would live in humility. And then, of course, he would die in ultimate, abject humility, in scorn, having been rejected of his own. And yet, through his humility, God would exalt him. Humble in this life till the very end, so that he might be exalted in the life to come. Humble in physical circumstances so that he might be exalted in spiritual circumstances. This is a consistency not just in the life of Jesus Christ, but a consistency that we find all throughout Scripture that indeed the humble are the ones who are exalted in the eyes of the Lord. The humble are those that find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Before the humility of the manger, the shepherds, came the humility of the woman who would bear our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So consistent is the pattern of humility within the, the life of Christ that not only was his birth and his life consistent with humility, but his mother was as well a woman of great humility. And today, we're going to consider her declaration of humble praise in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. And as we do so, we're, we'll learn some lessons about ourselves as well. There's a, a good amount of text to get through, so let's dive right in. Beginning in verse 39, we'll read verses 39 and 40. The text tells us, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. We mentioned a couple of weeks back that we don't know explicitly the city in Judah, where, in the hills of Judah, where, where Elizabeth and Zacharias lived, but most likely it was somewhere in the Hebron area. We pick up directly after the announcement that was made to Mary by Gabriel. In that announcement, Gabriel specifically mentioned that Elizabeth... Mary's relative was having a child miraculously in her old age. Now, there's no direct mention of whether or not Mary knew that the child that Elizabeth was, was to bear uh, was the forerunner to Messiah. I'm, I'm sure that she and Elizabeth would eventually at least have this conversation. So we don't know at this point if Mary knew that. However, she goes to Elizabeth, having heard this news, and that's what we find here. And the scriptures tell us that as she entered into the house of Zacharias, she saluted Elizabeth. That, that means to embrace, uh, specifically to greet. We know that there was some verbal exchange here, or at least something verbal on Mary's end. Because as we continue to read, we find in verses 41 and 42, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. So Elizabeth hears the voice of Mary, who apparently she knows, 
And the text tells us um, that her, her child, who would have been six months old at this point, leapt in her womb. Now, it's not uncommon for a child at six months old to have some movement, uh, but there's something unique, apparently, something different about the babe's movement here, sufficient that the woman Elizabeth would notice a difference and that the Holy Spirit uh, would choose to record in Scripture that there was something happening here for every generation. It, it wasn't just the baby moving uh, naturally here, or else the Scriptures would not have inspired it or else it would not have been mentioned. It's quite clear here, under the authority of the Word of God and according to the inspiration of the Word of God, that, that, that the baby made a movement that was unusual here and that it was explicitly connected to Mary's voice or hearing, Elizabeth hearing Mary's voice. This movement was divinely compelled as a testimony of Gabriel's promise to Zacharias that the child would be filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb and that even though the child was not fully formed, he, he is yet already compelled by the Spirit of God to testify of the Messiah. Now upon feeling this leap, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Ghost herself, perhaps an overflow of the child's filling. And she cries out, the text says with a loud voice, Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. The testimony of her child in consistency with his calling did not draw attention to himself, but rather directed the attention toward Messiah. When, when the babe leapt in her womb, she didn't say, oh, my child. She said, oh, your child. The, the testimony of John's leaping drew attention to the Messiah. And this would be John's entire life. This would be the entire purpose of his life. This would be everything that John's life consisted of would be to point others to Messiah. The baby's leap in the womb diverted Elizabeth's attention to the unique blessedness of that Messiah who was in Mary's womb. Elizabeth continues in verses 43 to 45. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed. For there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth testifies of the wonder of that moment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She has been filled with the Spirit of God. And she testifies of the babe leaping in her womb. The, this, the text specifically says that the babe leapt for joy. That word meaning exultation or celebration. We might again be tempted to dismiss this, for we know how pregnant mothers act, and, and, and the fathers of pregnant mothers, right? The mother is walking through the store and she goes down the candy aisle and she says, oh, the baby wants, right? Oh, the baby wants that chocolate bar. Oh, the baby wants. And, and the, the, the mother perceives every little kick and movement as the baby wants that watermelon. The baby wants that popcorn. And so we know how this goes, but that's, that, that can't be what's happening here. And the reason why that can't be what's happening here is because Elizabeth is speaking being filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? It's not uncommon for parents to impose upon our children, especially those that can't speak or those who are in the womb, some interpretation of their actions or of their movements. But, but Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Ghost, the one who is called the Spirit of Truth. 
And the one who is called the spirit of truth, as that spirit declares through Elizabeth, declares that this baby leapt, not just in some strange coincidental manner, but through joy, in joy, for hearing the mother of Messiah. That word joy literally means exultation. And she imposes this upon this unborn child. And thus imposes upon this unborn child emotion, will. Any Christian would see that and, and see an implicit another reason for us to recognize that abortion is murder. Because indeed, if this child could leap for joy in the womb, if there was joy at the sound of Mary's voice, if there was a response of emotion, then we must have a child. Elizabeth blesses Mary for her faith, is what she does here. And isn't that something? She says here, And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told from the Lord. So she blesses the Messiah, and then she blesses Mary. But notice how she blesses Mary. She doesn't bless Mary for her character. She doesn't bless Mary for her attributes. Indeed, Mary is a sinful human without any special merit before God. She blesses Mary for her faith. At this point, Zacharias has been home for at least six months, unable to speak, having not put his full faith in Gabriel's message and Gabriel giving him that sign. One can imagine that Mary's belief at the angel's announcement would have been somewhat contrasted with Zechariah's unbelief. I don't believe Elizabeth was attempting to dig at her husband here. That's not the character of the woman as she's presented in Scripture. And yet it does, again, as we compared and contrasted the faith a couple of weeks ago, it again highlights to us the blessing of Mary, not, not for who she was or what she was, but because she believed. In contrast with Zechariah, who was at that moment, suffering the consequences of his lack of faith. Mary begins her response in verses 46 and 47. She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. In response to Elizabeth and her blessing upon her and upon the child, Mary turns her heart directly unto the praise of God. She invokes both her soul and her spirit in this praise. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, elevates him to a place of greatness. In her soul, she acknowledged the power of God in his miraculous uh, plan and this miraculous conception. In her spirit, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, exalting his goodness. In her spirit, she praises the God who has not only blessed her, but, but has used her or who would use her to bless the whole world. There's not necessarily an obvious significance to her use of soul and spirit here. It's, it's two different words, and that makes sense because they're two different things in the Scripture. Uh, there, there are those who are what, what are called dichotomists. They believe that man is simply a material and an immaterial being. But we at Legacy Baptist Church uh, favor what we call the, the trichotomist viewpoint, that man is made of three parts, the body, the soul, 
and the spirit. So we're broken into three, not two. Uh, the body being the vessel through which we operate, the soul being the seat of our personality and our emotion and our will, and then the spirit being that God-aware and, and the element that's that has the capacity to commune with God, to relate to God, to, to interact with the spirit realm. And so she uses those two words separately here. The point of Mary's words, however, is, is likely not to distinguish between the element of her soul that magnifies God and the element of, of her spirit which exalts him. It's probably simply her way of saying that with every fiber of her being, she is praising God. Not just with her lips, not just with her actions, but with her soul, with her spirit, with everything that she is, she is praising and honoring God. And she continues in verses 48 and 49. She says, For he, that would be God, hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. As Mary begins her praise, She, she starts with God's goodness toward her. She states that God has rewarded her humility. That Mary had lived a life in obedience to the word of God in humility. And for those of you who have, who have endeavored to live this kind of a life, the life that God asks us to live in the word of God, a life of humility, we know that a life of humility and of submission and of obedience is a life which at times can feel underserved. You defer. You accept things as they come oftentimes. It's, it's a, a life where you're not drawing attention to yourself. It's a, a life that is minimized. And yet here Mary declares that God, having seen her humility, thus chose to exalt her. That her humility physically has brought her spiritual exaltation. And this is a characteristic of God. It is everything that makes up God's character to exalt the humble. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23, we read, A man's pride shall bring him low but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. In James chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. From the Proverbs, the wise King Solomon, to Jesus himself in Matthew, to James, the brother of Jesus, to Peter, we see the testimony in Scripture of humility and exaltation. So now this woman of low estate will for every generation from that point forward be called blessed of God. 
These statements are not intended to magnify her at all. She didn't, she didn't come into this in consistency with her humility. She didn't come in and say, yeah, I'm something special. She said, yes, I am something blessed. And there's a pretty big difference there. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. She says in verse 49, for he that is, he that is mighty. Speaking of God, and then she attributes to him holiness. Holy is his name. I'm blessed because God is good. I'm blessed because God is mighty. I'm blessed because God is holy, and that holy, mighty, good God has chosen to do something through me. That's not self-exaltation at all. She's praising the Lord. When the Hebrew or Greek mind thinks of the idea of a name, he or she is thinking about the whole of who a person is. We've covered this before, but it's worth mentioning whenever we see this phrase, holy is his name, or, or to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. When we use the concept of God's name, it is not simply his title. It is everything that he is. And we, we give the illustration, and you've heard me say it before, that if I were to say, my wife has a good name in this community, or I have a good name in this community, that doesn't mean that, my, that the community likes my wife's name, nor does it mean the community likes my name. That's not what it means to have a good name, right? To have a good name in a community means you have a good reputation, means your reputation precedes you, means when somebody hears your name, they think well of you. They think of virtue. They think of integrity. They think of honesty. They think of hard work. They think of something good, right? That's the idea here. Holy is his name. It means that God's very identity is wrapped up in his holiness. In the same way, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is not simply to believe that Jesus was his name, nor to believe in the, the general history, but to accept him, his message, his person, his work, what he did, what he claimed to do. That's belief on his name. And that's the idea here. She says, holy is his name, that God is set apart. God is something higher. God is something greater. God is something more than we are. And she's elevating that. She's magnifying that. She's highlighting that. Declaring that God in his very essence is set apart, is great. Mary then begins a, a, a chain of praises linked directly to Old Testament declarations of God's name, of God's character. She's elaborating upon what it means that God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? Because that word holy means set apart. Of course, sinless is one way that we think of holiness. But the fact that God is set apart from us means so much more than just that he's sinless. So let's read verses 50 to 55 together. She says, His mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So in verse 50, she declares the great mercy of God. Mercy from generation 
to generation, hearkening to several Old Testament concepts to be sure, including the Ten Commandments where God declared his mercy. He says in that passage that he shows mercy unto thousands there in Exodus 20. But probably where she was going, where she was coming from with this was Psalm 33:18, which says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. That God looks upon those who hope in his mercy. And we've defined hope before at the church, a joyful and earnest expectation the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. Let me say that again. Hope is a joyful and earnest expectation. The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. And we use that word to define hope because that's how the Bible defines hope, but it's not really how society defines hope, right? We're, we're uh, in, in the midst of baseball season now, and, and when people are watching their favorite sports team, they hope their sport, sports team wins. And depending on the team and the year, uh, that hope may be well-founded or it may not be. But either way, there's a great degree of chance, right, in, in, in the hope that we have that our sports team might win something. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. When the Bible talks about hope, the Bible is talking about the expectation of that which is secure, that which is insured. It's the kind of hope you have when you've bought your plane ticket and you've got it in your hand but you're just waiting for the time. You've packed your bags and your plane ticket is there but, but you, you have to wait for the plane to leave, right? So you have an expectation of that which is surely going to happen. That everything is already prepared. Everything's in place. Everything's been paid for. There's nothing between you and that, that vacation but time. That's hope. And so the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him and upon them that hope in his mercy. To them that know God is merciful and have every expectation of God's mercy. In 51, she said, He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Probably hearkening to that same chapter in the Psalms, which says in verse 10, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught, he maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The eye of the Lord is upon those that fear him, that hope in his mercy, that are humble. But the Lord resists, brings down the haughty, the proud, the arrogant. Mary's statements in verses 52 and 53 are very similar to the words of Hannah. In her, I hope that's not too, the next, yeah, that's not too small, good. Very similar to the words of Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, where Hannah says, He raised up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the thrones of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world's upon them. So one woman rejoicing in having been barren and now receiving a child uh, being used as the basis for Mary's rejoicing several hundred years later as she rejoices in the Messiah who she would carry. That the mighty are put down, the humble are exalted. And this is the character of our God and this is the character of God's kingdom. We are kingdom citizens. We live, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, as a child of God in the kingdom of God, and this is how God's kingdom works. God exalts the humble, and God 
rejects, lowers the proud. This is who God is. It characterizes everything, not only about how God would deal with Elizabeth and Mary, but how Messiah would live and even die. He would be, Messiah, that is, would be, in fact, the most humble. And therefore, he would receive the greatest of exaltation. She continues in verses 54 and 55. He hath hopen, helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. There's his mercy again. As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. The promises of God's mercy upon this particular group begin with Abraham in Genesis 15. And they continue throughout every book in the Old Testament. That God would come to redeem his people and to show mercy to the nations. And when she's finished, we finish with Mary today. The scriptures tell us that she abode with her, that would be with Elizabeth, about three months. And then she returned to her own house. She stays with Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth was about six months at this point. So she stays with Elizabeth either until the birth or just before the birth. And then she heads back home. I would presume that she probably stayed to help through the birth. And then she went home, being three months pregnant now herself. And that's where we leave Mary today as we apply this morning. I'd like to give us three points of application that we consider as we think of this tremendous praise that Mary gives unto the Lord. Point number one is this. God's blessings, spiritual blessings, are an extension of grace, not merit. God's blessings are an extension of grace, not merit. We defined grace this morning in our Sunday school time. We define it again here. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. God giving me a free gift which I do not deserve. By its very definition, grace is when God gives us something that we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. Now, it's important, first of all, that we, we establish this definition. That grace is apart from any worth or from any merit on our behalf. God bestows something on us unmerited. We've mentioned already in a couple of contexts that there's nothing intrinsically special about Mary. It was in 1854 that Pope Pius IX declared that Mary was born without original sin on the basis of the foreseen merits of her eventual son, Jesus Christ. So the Pope declared that, that God allowed Mary to be born without original sin, not that she was sinless, but that she didn't have original sin. She didn't carry original sin so that she could be a vessel through whom the, the, the child Jesus would be born. Uh, this is a false doctrine. This is absolutely not substantiated in Scripture in any way. What this doctrine seeks to do is establish Mary's worth in bearing Jesus. Mary's worth in being the one who would bring forth Messiah. And so she, in order for her to be worthy, she had to be declared to be without original sin. And that's very consistent with Catholic teaching and a Catholic perspective. The problem is that, that it's just not in the Bible. Mary did not need to be prepositioned to deserve to carry the Messiah. She did not need to be free from original sin to be worthy of Messiah because the blessing of the Lord upon her, like the blessing of the Lord upon any man or woman is not contingent upon Mary's worth or merit, but upon grace. Notice this about Mary and this 
miraculous conception. In verse 28 of chapter 1, when the angel first appeared unto Mary, he said these words, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. He calls her highly favored. Now, uh, according to, to that, the, the Catholic doctrine, she's highly favored as an extension of what God made her so that she's worthy to bear Christ because she does not have original sin. But the word highly favored there, you notice, literally means to grace. It's, it's a derivative of the Greek word grace. To favor in grace. We know what grace means. Grace means unmerited favor. The angel is not telling Mary that she has been blessed for who she is or what she has done. He's telling her that she's been graced. She's been graced with a privilege. God is about to give her a blessing, a privilege, apart from her merit, apart from her effort. And lest that not be enough, two verses later, the angel says this to her. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, verse 30, for thou hast found favor with God... And there's the word charis, the word grace. She has found unmerited favor. Mary did not deserve to be the mother of Messiah. She was graced. Mary had not earned the right to be the mother of Messiah. She had been graced. And we need to understand this about the blessings which God bestows upon people in a spiritual sense. They're an extension of grace, not of merit. We could run down a list of blessings, the blessings of God upon this church, the blessings of God upon the families of this church, the blessings of God upon individuals in this church, and, and we could fill up an entire sermon period just going around giving testimonies of God's goodness and God's blessings. And the mature Christian in the faith will recognize that if we were to go around and give testimonies, those would not be testimonies of our merit. Those would not be testimonies of how good we are or how well we've done. They would be testimonies of God's grace. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Paul tells the church of Corinth that, that it's grace from beginning to end that defines the Christian existence. That grace made him who he is in Christ, and because of who he was in Christ as an apostle, as a man who knew the word of God very well, he says, I'm going to labor. I'm going to work as hard as I can to be found worthy of that grace. But he says, as I worked hard to be found worthy of that grace, you know what I found? That the only thing that allowed me to work that hard, the only thing that gave me the, the capacity to labor, to walk worthy of the grace that God had given to me, was the grace of God. God's grace sees us through to the end, which is also God's grace. Grace from beginning to end. In the Christian life, that everything that we, every capacity, every effort, every success, every triumph can be traced to the grace of God which has been poured out upon mankind both through what we call common grace and through the grace that has been poured out upon us in Christ. In Matthew 5.45, the Bible tells us that, that God is the one who makes the sun to rise, and it says that he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He makes the rain to fall on the evil and on the good. Every common blessing in this life are, are graces from God that are offered 
completely without merit to mankind. How much more than the graces that he bestows upon believers rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So God's blessings, they're an extension of God's grace, not of merit. And what this does, what grace does is grace levels the playing field. Every woman in Mary's day had the hope of bearing Messiah. Every Jewish woman, right? There had to be, there were some qualifications there. Had the hope of bearing Messiah because the blessings of God are by grace, not merit. Likewise, we can't earn the blessings of God. And that levels the playing field. You aren't more or less blessed because of your family heritage. You aren't more or less blessed because of your financial resources. You aren't more or less blessed because of your intellect or because of your beauty. Now we can call those blessings, but God's grace can pour as much upon the poor or the needy or, or one who lacks intellect or beauty as it can upon those who have those things. And as we assert this point, th there's an important counterpoint that must be asserted as well. Common grace is poured out on all men. God's graces are given apart from personal merit. But there's a characteristic within the heart of man that positions him for grace and a deeper realization of God's graces upon his behalf. In other words, God pours out his grace without merit, but there are certain people upon whom that grace will fall by God's design. And that's what we've seen throughout the entire time today, that God's grace, second point, is realized through humility. So God's blessings are an extension of grace and not merit, but if you want to position yourself for God's grace, for, for, for the greatest realization of God's grace in your behalf, it's realized through humility. Humility does not form the basis for merit. Humility undergirds grace. In Proverbs 3.34, the Bible says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. In James 4.6, the Bible says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. In 1 Peter 5.5, 5, the Bible says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humility, by definition, is lowliness of mind and spirit. Humility defers merit and thus cannot be a source of merit. And the Bible reveals that the humble man is the man that positions himself for God's grace. That God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. As one walks through the scriptures, it is an unavoidable conclusion about the character of God that he is repulsed by pride. A proud man is the man who would seek in any context to keep for himself the praise, the merit, or the worth that belongs to God by right. God hates pride. God hates arrogance. God hates self-righteousness. And so it is that while the blessings of God are an extension of the grace of God, the gra and grace of God, the grace of God is favor apart from merit, God still reserves the right to pour out his favor, his unmerited favor, upon those whom he chooses and withhold it from those whom he chooses. And God chooses to pour out his unmerited favor upon those who are humble. 
In the case of the common graces, the sun, the seasons, the rain, bodies working, God has chosen to give those graces to all men, proud or humble. Those common graces have been given to all. And yet in the realm of spiritual blessing, God's grace is related to humility. So while a man does not earn God's blessings, so a man could never boast in what he has been given, he does position himself for God's blessings through fostering a heart of personal humility. And this makes sense, doesn't it? That God would choose to pour out his greatest graces upon the most humble because the most humble, by definition, will be most likely to give God the glory for those blessings. And that brings us to our third point. First, God's blessings are an extension of grace, not merit. Second, God's grace is realized through humility. Third, and finally, God's grace upon the humble will result in God's glory and praise. The point of God's working on this earth is that he will eventually be exalted above all. That he will be ultimately glorified. This is what God wants, and this is what God deserves. Elizabeth and Mary both conceived. And when they came to together, their lips were not full of praises one for another, were they? They were full of praises to God. Elizabeth declared Mary blessed, but not on her basis, but on the basis of what God has done for her. Mary said that her soul magnified the Lord because God, in his consistent and perfect character, exalted the lowly. She quotes verse after verse extolling the holiness and the mercy of God upon every generation. God's goodness on behalf of them boiled over into praise and glory given to God in the ears of all people. And this is what God wants. This is what God expects. This is what the grace of God ought to lead us unto. The grace of God ought to bring us to a place where we are praising God. As God chooses to pour out His grace, as he pours it out on the humble, the humble will hear thereof and be glad. The humble will rejoice in the God of their salvation. God deserves this praise. And, and that's why we meet together, right? We meet to learn, certainly, but we also meet to praise the Lord. That, that, that's what our songs do. They're, they're intended to draw our attention to the goodness of God, not, not, not ourselves. Even when we speak of ourselves in song, it ought to be songs that are, are relating ourselves to how God has been good to us. Why our time is spent learning His Word instead of learning our own ideas. We, we, we learn God's Word. That, that's what we do here, not, not, not our own thoughts, because in doing so, we exalt God. And his, his name and, and, and His ways, not our own. Not just opinions. We have had the blessing for the past several hundred years to live in a culture and a society which rewards effort. A society in which if you are willing to work hard, you had historically been given the freedom to succeed or to fail. The freedom to fail also secures the freedom to succeed. And as such, in, in a material sense, we live in a culture that's very success-oriented and one in which when a man succeeds, he's rewarded. And this is right in a physical context, right? 
that the man who works hard, that the man who has the ideas, that the man who puts in the labor, that the man who organizes, that the man, that the man who, who, who does the work gets the credit and gets the reward. And this is right in an economic sense, in a worldly material sense. It's been very good. This nation has, has been greatly blessed by that philosophy. But such is not the case in the economy of God. And as we close, this is what I want us to remember. We, we've talked about humility. You, you, you've got it. I, I've, I've repeated myself several times. But in the economy of God, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Mary was given the grace of bearing the Messiah, given this great honor because she was humble, lowly. She humbled herself, so God exalted her. And such is still the case today. In God's economy, in the realm of the spiritual, among the kingdom of God, the greatest among you will be those who assume the posture of a servant. Husbands, wives, children, the greatest the greatest in the kingdom of heaven in this room, the greatest in the eyes of God are not the wealthiest, the strongest, the best looking, the most intelligent, the most physically successful. The greatest in God's eyes among this kingdom, and it might be the six-year-old. It might be the 12-year-old. It might be the 17-year-old. The ones who are lowly. The ones who have assumed the posture of the servant, the ones who have humbled themselves before God and man are counted the, best, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We live in a culture of me where anything I disagree with is, is offensive and thus wrong. Where your rights end where my opinions begin. We live in a world that's blinded by pride and self-righteousness. Just get on social media. It's a cesspool of pride. And the church has been affected by this. The church has been affected in many ways. One of the ways that they've, uh, that they've been affected is you see in broader evangelical circles that the church has abandoned God-centered worship for man-centered entertainment. Pride. The church has abandoned the study of God's word for self-help. Pride. And if we want to pinpoint what is keeping the church from being effective, why culture is on a downward spiral toward abject depravity, why we can't seem to reach people, why culture has by and large rejected the testimony of the church, why things are the way they are in, in, in the broader circle today of, of evangelicalism, we can trace it back to the concept that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. By God's grace, that will not be said of this church. By God's grace, we as individuals that make up this body of Christ will maintain a God-centered perspective, a humble perspective, 
Humility led Mary to the blessing of being the mother of Messiah, not merit. That same humility will usher grace upon us as a church, as families, as individuals. If you want God's grace, humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord. Assume the posture of the servant and watch what God does. Let's close in prayer.